Happy Tuesday to the KC Morning Hoes Tuesday on your KC Morning Show. You know what we do. We take back America. You, me, Professor Harvey K, we reclaim that radical history. And we usually record these things Monday night. Well, it was a holiday yesterday. So here is what we're going to do. Last week, Professor Harvey K and our friend Alan Minsky, he's the executive director over at Progressive Democrats of America. We've had him on a couple different times. Well, they made an appearance on The Majority Report with Sam Cedar and Emma Viglin. One of my favorite shows. I think Sam and Emma do just amazing work. Emma Viglin, she used to be with Young Turks way back in like 2018. We did a segment together for the Brent Welder campaign. So I've been a fan for a very long time. And on the show today, yeah, we are going to air that segment. Harvey K. Alan Minsky on The Majority Reports. And then next week, I can't confirm, we wrap up FDR. That's right, FDR month, eight months running. We wrap that bad boy up next Tuesday. Rate, review, subscribe, do that thing you do. Kansas City, I love you in solidarity. Let's take back America. My name's Hartzell. We'll see ya in the morning. Bye. January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News Special Report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Citians must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. Sam Cedar, Emma Vigeland on the Majority Report. It is a pleasure to welcome back to the program Harvey Kay, Professor Emeritus of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. And welcome Alan Minsky, Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America on their, um, their call and their enumeration of a 21st century uh, economic bill of rights. Um, guys, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Um, so, uh, uh, Harvey, let's, let's start with you. What, wh- where are we in terms of straying from the concept of an economic bill of rights? Or, or, or maybe better yet, uh, let me put it, where did this first develop, this idea? Okay, this idea was first proposed by Franklin Roosevelt. It, it's best known for having been the centerpiece of his 1944 State of the Union address to Congress and the nation. And But the important point before I, I mention what he did is that in 1943, FDR wanted to know 
what Americans wanted after the war when it came to social policies. And he had already laid out back in 1932 when he was running for president the idea of an economic declaration of rights. And in 1941, in a State of the Union, he had projected a vision of the four freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. He now commissioned a national, a major national survey, secretly, you might say, to find out what did Americans want. And what he discovered, among the things he discovered, is that 85% of Americans wanted what we would call universal health care, guarantee of health care. They wanted comfortable housing assured. They wanted jobs with living wages. And this was just... I, you know, selected items of a long list of questions that they, that they were asked. And he felt confident at the outset of 44, which was not only the time for the State of the Union address, but it was also in some ways the launching of his fourth campaign for the presidency. And in that State of the Union message, he said, we've reached a point in American history where we've come to accept, basically, the idea, the necessity of a second Bill of Rights. In fact, he said, look, we know that needy men, and we would add women, needy men are not free men. And he laid out a series of what he considered to be essential new rights to be recognized in a, fa in a fashion, whether by way of amendment or by way of congressional action, that would literally sort of take America from the war effort into a whole new peacetime effort and would remain, he believed, intact. And if you think about it like that, that was a great vision, though probably he knew he couldn't get it too quickly because between the Republicans in Congress aligned with the Southern Democrats, who, by the way, were not opposed to the concept, but they were afraid it might represent an undermining of segregation and white supremacy in the South. So he knew he might face opposition. Well, after the war, Truman did make certain efforts in that direction. But the idea of an economic bill of rights, although it never really was enacted, at least not aggressively so in part until things did begin to happen in the 60s, was actually the framework, very explicitly the framework for the 1960 Democratic Party platform, the authors of which actually were worried Kennedy was not liberal enough to accept it because he actually used to say, I'm not a liberal, you know. And then in 1966, well, 1965-66, all the more enthused by the great society and war and poverty efforts, A. Philip Randolph, the great labor and civil rights leader, projected the idea of a freedom budget. Not the idea, he actually laid out in a pamphlet and I forgot we we're going to be visual today. I'll just show you. This was the pamphlet itself, a freedom budget for all Americans. And it was a call, literally a call to wipe out poverty in America and laid out a whole series of initiatives and what it would cost. And I will tell you, 150 university presidents, foundation heads, labor leaders. In other words, every prominent, practically every prominent figure in the sort of center left to the left endorsed it though all the names are indicated in the pamphlet and this was his call but of course we know all too well tragically the war in vietnam literally drained away the resources that might have driven lbj to take that war on poverty all the further and then finally in terms of the 60s uh martin luther king jr in 1968 not long before his assassination published a piece in a major, one of the major American magazines of the day, a call for an economic bill of rights. 
at that point, it generally speaking was on the agenda given what had become the Democratic Party agenda in the 60s, but it did not in the course of the 70s advance, period. What they saw in this, of course, was Medicare, Medicaid, and a series right. of things in the 60s. And it was revived, however, by Bernie Sanders in his 2019-2020 campaign on the website. Though, unfortunately, he did not take it into the presidential debates or, for that matter, into his campaign generally. All right. Well, I want to get back to why, you know, why that didn't happen. But let's jump to uh, Alan. Uh, tell us what 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 is in the uh, 21st century economic bill of rights? I mean, you have 10 like sort of, I guess, um, uh, fundamental uh, elements or rights that would be uh, enumerated. Well, we just today put up a web page uh, on the PDA website, which is pdamerica.org slash economic bill of rights with no spaces in between so pdamerica.org slash economic bill of rights do you want me to go through and read them I, yeah uh, yeah i mean we'll we'll put a link to this but let's let's go through them and and and, and enumerate them and of course this is um i mean this is uh well it is it is both a a messaging document and a material uh, document, right? I mean, in, in, in yes. both respects. I mean, it is uh, both uh, good policy and good politics. Uh, right. But, but uh, uh, yeah, read them off for us. Sure thing. Um, and um, just to say quickly, we wrote three articles. And in the second article, for each one of these, all 10 that I'm about to read, we match them up with really existing legislation in the contemporary Congress that basically puts forward this. In other words, we're making the point that the Bernie Sanders squad left progressive wing of the Democratic Party already supports this. So it's a messaging thing to accent the fact that emphasizing economics is a very important thing that the progressive Democrats uh, you know, broadly understood need to do more in terms of this election cycle and all election cycles going forward and at least in the near future. So here they are. Um, a 21st century economic bill of rights will guarantee all people residing in the United States the right to the essentials of a good life, regardless of their income, race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, or country of origins. So the 10 uh, items are one, a useful job that pays a living wage. Two, a voice in the workplace through a union and collective bargaining. Three, comprehensive quality health care. Four, complete cost-free public education and access to broadband internet. Five, decent, safe, affordable housing. And remember, these are all we're saying should be guaranteed rights in society. Six, a clean environment and a healthy planet. Seven, a meaningful endowment of resources at birth and a secure retirement. So youth and uh, early life and end of life. Eight, sound banking and financial services. Nine, an equitable and economically fair justice system. Ten, recreation and participation in civic and democratic life. The word recreation, by the way, is one thing that we kept uh, as a word itself from the Roosevelt era. You can look at that line and say the right to guaranteed paid vacation. So 10 is recreation and participation in civic and democratic life. So those are the 10 with number one at the top again, a useful job that pays a living wage. My name's Hartzell. When we come back, more from Professor Harvey K. Alan Minsky, the executive director over at Progressive Democrats of America, and Sam Cedar and Emma Biglin, host of the Majority Report. This is awesome. My name's Hartzell. This is your KC Morning Show. It doesn't hurt me.
I'm interested, Alan, and, and, and Harvey, you can weigh in on this, too. The, um, the, the use of the concept of freedom as a, um, as a, as a linchpin for, for FDR um, and, and, and sort of the abandonment of it, it seems to me, in the, you know, bo- both as a, as, a, as, a rhetorical, as a rhetorical device, but also as a concept that uh, because... So much of what we, uh, you know, by the the left, by the, you know, the center left, by the Democrats, progressives, however you want to say it, um, that libertarians sort of and the and conservatives sort of took over, hijacked the concept of of freedom uh, or liberty, and um, and and have redefined it as something where they are unencumbered by any type of action by government that promotes these values. As opposed to an individual's um, freedom or liberty from the um, uh, that that government can actually provide for them in uh, in uh, against sort of the idea of need or economic coercion or uh, outside threats. Harvey, why don't you take that? But let me just say I am just doing big cheerleading for your leading question, Sam, because it's right on point. Take it away, Harvey. Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, as long as we've got the idea of messaging in our heads, I mean, FDR, whatever his faults and failings were, was an absolutely brilliant messenger, messenger. And he always rooted whatever he did in this idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that that was the fundamental American promise, which is why when he first envisioned something like this economic bill of rights, he talked about an economic declaration of rights. He wanted literally, he said, you know, in the course of the 19th century and the Gilded Age, we've allowed the titans of industry, in other words, the the big industrial capitalists, to hijack the American promise. And it's time we take back and renew that promise. But to do that, 
we need to remember that even then, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was a signal that economic security, that economic opportunity were fundamental to that American promise. And so, really, whenever he spoke, he always tried to root it fundamentally in that uh, revolutionary moment of 1776. Uh, I mean, uh, my thinking is that, yeah, that we've kind of lost touch with that. And by the way, if you were to read, say, The Nation, you'd probably see the word rights along the way. And if you read the National Review, you'd see the word liberty regularly along the way. And that was what FDR may well have feared, the possibility that indeed, because he warned at the end of his State of the Union address, he said, beware of rightist reaction. And he didn't mean the likes of those who stormed the January, you know, on January 6th, the Capitol. He actually meant the corporate bosses. As he said, it was a, 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 a wealthy business figure who told him, be careful about the right-wing reactionary corporate interests coming after this. So, I mean, I hope I'm getting to the point, and that is that the question of rights is freedom and liberty in FDR's mind, and what we need to remember is that we've allowed a certain language, a certain, I hate to use a postmodern term, discourse, to be hijacked truly by the right. And in fact, I think all too often, and this is, this is my view at least, all too often, we've generally allowed the right ever since Ronald Reagan to do a massive hijacking of the American story and the American imagination. Well, frankly, I feel that, you know, without a coordinated offensive, right, um, like the one that you're you're advocating for where it's a broad policy set that includes rights for hum for all Americans, economic rights. And I, I think the theme of the show today is democratic leadership failures. And it's just these, these tweaks to the, to the system, you're seeding the framing to the right wing in the way that you describe Harvey. So, I mean, we also, uh, in talking about the response to the shooting, we were saying how there needs to be a, a massive shift in leadership. Um, the, there's a, absence of imagination that i think is uh is is inherent to this and they wouldn't even entertain these concepts frankly yeah yeah well, alan might well mention that the, the the candidates at least that his organization progressive democrats have embraced and endorsed have themselves been asked whether they would they could take this on as as part of their mission and i'll just before we get into that i'll just say that my greatest hope was that that Nina Turner was going to win in Cleveland because she was so enthusiastic about this. And I thought this would be the, she would be, excuse the metaphor, the vehicle to take this into the progressive caucus, or at least into the squad to, to the word rejuvenate is improper because they're all much younger than I am, but to revive the energies that we saw at the outset of their formation. Right, Alan? Yeah, I mean, I'll I mean, leave that to you. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's really uh, sort of crazy that the progressive movement writ large doesn't lead more with economics. I mean, simply put, and for decades, and currently at this moment with inflationary concerns, economics is polling as the top concern for the American public. Okay, right there, you have to speak to the electorate. Okay, the left progressive movement has allowed itself to be defined by basically jerks like Bill Maher as being all about, you know, messaging that suffocates public discourse, okay? Or whatever issue of the day they wanna highlight as what the left progressives are about. You actually look at the work of the actual progressives in Congress, in this Congress last year, 
And what they were focused on, just absolutely laser focused on, was making all of the statutes in Build Back Better more economically progressive. You know, the center right would say, no, this goes too far. They would take it another direction. They'd even propose something better. So the actual work they were doing was on core economics. And really, if we had a unified left progressive movement, which we need to have because we're looking at the absence of a leading progressive presidential candidate for 2024. And we really need to have coordination where economic messaging is at the really front and center of what we stand for, because these are incredibly popular positions when you fill in the public policy positions for all 10 of those points. I mean, you look at the polling, you look at the polling among Democrats, registered Democrats, and it's an astronomical blowout that we should be winning all of these elections. Now we know incumbency, the power of incumbency, the power of money, and all that that can do to pollute the airwaves in these small congressional districts can really skew the results. And that's what we're seeing across the country. We had a, you know, a victory against massive amounts of money in Pennsylvania last week and also won now this official out in Oregon. But my word, you know, we're, these are difficult. Buying congressional races is, is an easy thing to do in the era of Citizens United. So how do we face that? We face that with basically run a national unified messaging campaign as best as possible. I mean, it's, it's going to have some fluctuations here and there. But if you lead with economics on that, and by the way, this in no way abandons any of the other issues. By all measures, the progressive movement is going to be the greatest ally for the transgendered movement, for all of the issues that otherwise are being spoken about. But this needs to come up as really the top central focus of the issue of the progressive left. One, because it's a winning hand. No, two, because it was a winning hand. And one, because it's already the work that we stand for. It's the most difficult lift. Because let's face it, American big money, American capital, in all of its power and force, is going to be arrayed against this message in ways that they're not going to be against other messages. So. What What is the mechanism for that? I mean, because we, you know, we do have right. like, you know, I mean, look, uh, Nina Turner was was outspent, uh, or at least, um, you know, uh, in terms of this outside money, it came in hard and. Uh, we watch uh, Cisneros have to, you know, she sort of tempered her message a little bit, I think, for a changing district. Uh, but again, there were, you know, uh, incumbency forces and the Democratic leadership and, uh, you know, NRA and uh, that way in on this. They're, they're not going away. Right. I mean, those are that those things exist. What is the mechanism? And 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 I. I accept the premise that there needs to be a sort of like a 20,000, 30,000 foot type of, uh, of narrative that stretches, that provides its own sort of umbrella for, and, and this is that, that message. But what's the apparatus that um, gets everyone on the same page <clears throat> that carries that message so that when... Anina Turner or, um, you know, I mean, uh, Summer Lee was able to, 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 to pull it off in Pennsylvania. But if you want to increase the sort of percentage of success, I guess, um, where, what is the apparatus that provides at least the context for those races to happen and give them a slight uh, leg up at, 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 on day one? Right. Well, obviously, it takes a lot of internal coordination among the progressive left, which is a very difficult thing to achieve for a whole bunch of reasons that I think all of us talking are relatively familiar with. Um, but from the point of view of Progressive Democrats of America, which is one of the organizations that's at the table with organizations like Our Revolution, Justice Democrats, all the way out on the left wing to DSA. I mean, we'll be advocating for this over the next period. You know, the midterm elections are, of course, a different 
uh, dynamic than the presidential races. Um, we, and, but again, are we going to have a really powerful progressive champion in the 2024 primaries? If we do, uh, then we certainly piggyback off of a candidate like Bernie Sanders, who would be leading with this. If Elizabeth Warren runs, and of course, PDA, if people don't know, we were the original Bernie Sanders PAC. We are very proud to be the organization that brought the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign to the world. We drafted him as the only organization to run the Run Bernie Run drafting effort and going all the way back to 2013. But if you look at a candidate like, like Elizabeth Warren, uh, for all the foibles and difficulties she had with her race, she clearly does lead on economic matters. And I think, you know, you look at the presidential candidates and you can see that if they're going to compete, they understand how prominent this has to be. But it gets dissipated by the time you get to the midterms. You know, in all, in all due respect, we probably have about four years to figure that one out. But I think we should start working on it right away. And certainly PDA will be advocating for this. Clearly, it's going to be a central focus of our advocacy going forward. And I do think the results would be better it would, if we're going to come out of this with seven to ten members of the squad. I bet you we can add to that considerably or would have added to that in this cycle. Of course, we don't know where the world will be in four Is there years, an, What's the number? Is there a number? I mean, does anybody have a number? Like, I mean, look, you know, we, we, we watched the Freedom Caucus and we never knew how many people were in the Freedom Caucus. That right. was one of their sort of like <laughs> right. their features. We're not going to, you know, it's like Fight Club type of thing. Um, and I'm not exactly sure what the value of that was other than they could probably project uh, you know, they didn't have uh, defections because nobody knew whether or not the people were in there anyways. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you, you can see the, the the value of it on some level, and it's certainly consistent with the brand in terms of lack of transparency. Um, but what is there, does, does, does someone have a number? Like, I mean, is well, someone I, I say uh, they're saying the that we're, we're 50 to 75, actually. So focus on the squad is a little disingenuous. You look at people like Jim McGovern out of Massachusetts, he's rock solid with us. Right? Worcester, There are yes. bunches of them, right? Um, but they're... But it's, but, but it's less than the progressive caucus. Okay. There definitely are weak progressive What's caucus. the number we need? Like, where, where oh, is the... Where is the Okay. <laughs> well, I understand. No, no, but I, I but, do not. I mean, look. Look, I mean, the, the things we're proposing, you know how absurd the historical moment is? And, of course, this is an incredibly complex question. But if you look at America's top allies around the world throughout the whole Cold War period, we know which countries they were. Western Europe, South Korea, Japan. I mean, some of them because of conquest and all that. But basically, they all have this economic contract, social contract, and we don't. And it, the, even more of a craziness about it is, of course, the Roosevelt and Truman administration actually went in and drafted a lot of these constitutions that guaranteed the existence of social democracy. Now, neoliberalism has chipped away at it, but look, not really. They all have free universal health care. They largely have all free uh, public education through higher education. That even just got expanded in Germany under Angela Merkel. So we're the one country doesn't have, this is not a utopian scheme that's impossible to imagine how it, how it would be operating, right? So, you know, But if we have to, honestly, but, but, but Alan, if we have to wait for 218 people right. uh, well, in Congress to sign on, I mean, is there a number that anybody has contemplated that understands the Congress sure. where they're saying, and, you know, uh, okay, so there's actually the, the progressive caucus is probably closer to 50 to 75 and we're waiting and, 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 and we've talked to AOC and, uh, and, and, uh, representative Omar on this program. And they both brought up the idea of like, this is no, you know, we need to make this not just you pay $4,000 and you get the tour of the progressive caucus. We need to start having litmus tests so that we can, you know, create some meaningful, we, we know the parameters of when we can count, you know, we, we know the whip count before we actually go uh, out there. 
Is there anybody out there who said, like, you know, if we had 65 people, maybe it's 75, maybe it's 50. I, I don't yeah. know. We that. would be able to leverage this in this way. Um, I, I mean, because if it's 218, we're, we're yeah. I, I mean, I, I, you know, yeah. I, I, no. I want to be at least, I want to have some, uh, you know, at least descendants that will... Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, the first step, the first step under 218, if you just want to do it simply, would be half of that plus one. Once it becomes the majority of the caucus, then clearly the Democratic Party is standing for these things. It's out in front of the public in a way that is very clear. Now, under Jayapal's leadership and Pocon, too, on these matters, um, public facing, they would advocate for this. They would call for this. I mean, they were both brave enough to support Bernie Sanders for president in 2020. And um, so, you know, you start getting up towards 120. Okay, let's say we have to get to where the Progressive Caucus has a stronger hand in advocating for that. Again, probably cut in half plus one. So, you know, you're getting down to just a, with just a quarter of the Congress being really, really solid. But but bold advocates for this. They do need to be bold advocates because within the range of about the 20 to 70 that we have, many of them aren't. Now, it's difficult to get that much press and focus on you, as you know very well if you're just one of the Congress people. But again, once we get the Progressive Caucus, as it's been built up, Jaya Paul's done an incredible job organizing. You know? What about in the Senate? I mean, uh, 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 because, you know, we've, I, to, to the extent that uh, these things yeah. would have passed if there, if there wasn't an awareness that the Senate was going to kill it anyways, um, you know, uh, we might have had different votes. But uh, what about in the Senate? Okay. Well, of course, you're getting to to what is the the best shot at achieving this quickly, which is to the to the executive branch in a in a race nationally because these issues are very popular. In the Senate right now, we maybe maybe have like three to seven people who who really consistently stand with this agenda, um, and potentially we're going to get uh, one pickup in Pennsylvania in that regard. So uh, yes, yeah, slow moving in the Senate, and that goes to how expensive Senate races are. But again, the presidency, the most expensive is the race, of course, that more Americans pay attention to. And we saw um, a tremendous performance there in terms of the popularity of these issues on the national stage. On Senate races, in many respects, those are the hardest lift because the cost of Senate races is, can be prohibitive for where the money is on the progressive left and because the citizens united and we can compete more at the House level. But, you know, again, we got to get involved state by state and start getting these champions onto the Senate ticket and not shy away from that and build up the movement. I do think even with some mixed results and right now as it stands, disappointing result last night, um, we are the political movement with as much momentum as any political movement within electoral politics in the country. So that is Har still true. Harvey, let me ask you uh, just, I guess, a, a more conceptual question, uh, too, to get back to to to, to those ideas. Um you cite the uh, Declaration of Independence and uh, FDR's Four Freedoms. Um, where, why not the Constitution? I interviewed uh, uh, some folks. It was a pre-record, but um, uh, William Forbath and, and Joseph Fishkin, uh, uh, law professors, yeah. and, and they've just come out with a book, uh, The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, um, subtitle Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of Democracy. But the idea being that the Constitution... Uh, was a document that was, uh, I mean, look, it fundamentally, even if you accept the, uh, the, the frame of the right to some extent, that it is a document that inhibits the federal government's um, uh, ability to um, you know, constrain the states or individuals, that is a statement against consolidated, concentrated power in and of itself, right? I mean, because, you know, when the Constitution is written, 
they're talking about they don't want a king. And what is a king if not Bill Gates, right? Someone who has a uh, an incredible concentration of wealth that they can deploy uh, to change the course of a country or of a society. And, um, you know, at that time, the, the, there was no, there, 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 the, the only Bill Gates is around at that time wore crowns uh, a, a, a for the most part. And so this is a document that is written to constrain consolidated power. Um, and it, it, it vests the power in we the people, which suggests that that power and wealth should be distributed amongst we the people. Um, and so why not, uh, why not also, you know, if we're, if we're getting back to the idea of like, we need a broad framework and need to uh, recapture the, the, uh, the narrative, uh, you know, uh, I guess, um, uh, uh, captured by the right of these founding documents and these concepts, uh, why not also, let's take back the Constitution, too. I, I, that's great. We, we do know that it's almost impossible to get amendments passed, but we do know that the, that the preamble to the them? Constitution... I mean, I mean, honestly, I mean, I mean do we no. need them? I mean, no. do, do, do we need them? I possibly know, but this is a question also, you know, as you were saying that, and I, I'm intending to read uh, Forbath's book, I do want to say that FDR, I mean, I, I go back to FDR, and I will say that in 1936, when he was going to run once again for president, when he accepted the nomination, and the entire, by the way, the entire platform at that point was laid out in terms of the Declaration of Independence, he went before the stadium audience and he warned of economic royalists. He grabbed hold of that original idea. You mentioned aristocracy. He said, you know what? We fought a revolution and we set up a country in order not to have political royalists. He said, today, the economic royalists say that we want to overthrow American institutions. And maybe you know the, the next line. He said, well, they're right about one thing. We want to overthrow something. We want to overthrow their power. Wouldn't you love to hear <laughs> wouldn't you love i mean by the way bernie sanders might have taken that next step if he was more aggressive about grabbing hold of the past than he was but it is the case that that kind of language would definitely resonate among americans i i could easily imagine a, a candidate running simply in terms of the preamble to the constitution and the common the commonwealth the common welfare i mean those are the kinds of things it it's not simply a it's not simply a language it's also the idea that Look, to my mind, the Democrats have literally turned their back on the progressive and radical story of America over and over again. And by the way, that that I include in that even the progressives. OK. And the fact is that we the American imagination is waiting to be, if you like, redeemed and tapped the greatest. Look, not the greatest. I mean, in one sense, it's the greatest in the in the in the Voldemort sense. It was, I mean, Roosevelt was the history teacher in chief. Ronald Reagan was worshipped FDR's memory, turn, turned it inside out. But he knew that if you're going to transform, you also have to tell a story, not merely offer an agenda. And in part, this, this proposal that we've made is, is an effort not only to lay out 10 rights, economic rights, it's also the idea of starting to take back that story and cultivating the story for the 21st century. I mean, I, I have no argument with, with taking hold of the Constitution. I think the 14th Amendment should have been used far more often than it has been. 
I mean, and it's also, we should also say uh, that, uh, you know, the value of this is not just, um, you're not necessarily even taking back a, a story. You are tapping into a pre-existing, almost Thank primal uh, narrative that exists amongst the American public. Yeah. And it is much easier to create something that provide that is already, where there's already a foundation, where there's already an understanding and that it's almost an inarticulated uh, understanding of the way that the country should be. And, and, and tapping into that makes it a lot easier. You're, you're suddenly uh, going with the, the, the flow of the, of the river of our history, I guess. Uh, but Harvey K. Alan Minsky, thank you so much for this. We will put a link to um, uh, all the the URLs you mentioned, and um, no, no. the uh, uh, and and to these um, and to this economic uh, bill of rights. Really appreciate you coming on. Thank you oh. very much. Thank and you I appreciate both. all all your work. Too. It's good to so see you all. Yeah. yeah, it's good to see you. I've been traveling, but I don't know where. Too hard.